Hello and welcome everyone to our church family. Welcome back and thank you for joining us for today's online service. For any of you who are joining us for the first time on this channel, it's really wonderful to have you here and I hope that you find today's service a blessing and that as I unpack the word together this morning, that it will be meaningful to you. We're continuing today in our series in 1 Kings, and today we pick up chapter 12 of 1 Kings. And what we're going to learn in chapter 12 is how to take a kingdom and split it in half. That is the plan today. Uh, the, the narrative that we're going to look at in 1 Kings chapter 12, it's a miserable story. It's a story of folly, of selfishness, of imbecility, really, and, and just total arrogance. And this, this passage is going to be for us an object lesson in abject failure. And it's the story of, of a dozen rash words that bring about, about approximately 400 years of strife, of weakness, and ultimately destruction. And neither the foolish person who spoke them, nor any person who was listening in the crowd, dreamed about the number of evils that would flow from this moment of failure. So that's that's our you know that's my lead in and uh, and I hope you're excited you know to read this wonderful passage of scripture together with me. We're we're gonna look at the scripture today a little bit like the English rugby coach Eddie Jones does as he takes his players through the tape of the last rugby World Cup final against the Springboks and we're gonna stop every five minutes and we're gonna say okay did you see what went wrong there. Right? That's, that's our game plan for today. We're going to go through the story. We're going to ask God to help us to see the folly, the selfishness, the pride, and the sin that permeates the story in every space. And we're going to ask him to give us insight to see any of these things in ourselves and in our own hearts. And then we're going to ask for the grace and the wisdom to put them aside and to ask God to help us to find the godly path the way in which he desires us to live. So one last thing before we start, we're going to talk about King Rehoboam. King Rehoboam, he had a kingdom, right? Most of us don't have a kingdom, but we do have a church. We have a ministry. We have a leadership team. We have friends. We have a life group. We have family. We have colleagues, and the lesson we're going to learn from 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm going to tell you right up front, is that all of these things stand or fall by the manner in which we conduct ourselves. That's the lesson. All of these things, all of these groups of people that God has given, that are a blessing to our lives, they stand or they fall based on how we conduct ourselves. Okay, let's start the tape. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Rehoboam went to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your loyal subjects. All right, let's stop there. In these opening verses, there are a couple of important details that we need to see. Firstly, why are they in Shechem? We all know Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. It was the city of David. It was the center of his government. But Jerusalem was in Judea and Shechem was in Ephraim. Notice again that 
Rehoboam does not set the place for his coronation, which is different to David and Solomon. Right? They all got to pick where they got crowned. But all Israel has already gathered at Shechem, and they invite Rehoboam to come there. This begins to hint to us that there's some level of independence that the tribes are already showing at this point. There's some level of unrest. There's some level of distrust that's sitting underneath the surface. And so the tribes, they kind of arrange for the home ground advantage, as it were. So that's the first thing I want us to know. They're in Shechem. They're not in Jerusalem where we expect them to be. Secondly, we've got to ask the question, who is Jeroboam? Who is Jeroboam? Who is this guy? What is he doing there? So if you read earlier in 1 Kings chapter 11, you'll find the story of Jeroboam from about verse 26. And in short, Jeroboam is an Ephraimite whose work ethic is noticed by Solomon. He gets promoted to a position of authority. So later, as Solomon's godliness continues to decline, God sends the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam to declare that God has chosen him as the man who's going to inherit 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Because God is going to punish Solomon for his sins. Now, after this promise, Solomon, of course, you know, being a good leader, sets out to murder Jeroboam so that Jeroboam decides to flee to Egypt. So that's why he's in Egypt. You'll notice, if uh, you've been tracking with us from the beginning of the series, you'll notice how this part of the story is very similar to the story of David and Saul. If you know the history and the background of the nation of Israel, you remember David was also anointed king while Saul was king. And Saul also sought to kill David, so David ran away. So, so far, we've got a, a really nice parallel between these two stories. But let's notice something that the text says here about Jeroboam. In verse 3, it says, The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. Now, these, this verse paints a slightly more sinister picture than what we began to feel like in the beginning. Right? It's starting to look a little bit like a setup. The tribes have chosen the place where they're going to gather. It's a place that's away from Rehoboam's key support base. That would have been in Judah in the south. This is above Judah, north of Judah. It's in the place where Ephraim kind of has control. The tribes call up Jeroboam as well, and he's the contender for the crown. So this is quite an awkward moment, right? It's Rehoboam's coronation, but here comes Jeroboam that we would also kind of like to be king. And then Jeroboam acts as their spokesperson, and he voices their concerns to Rehoboam. So it's quite an, it's a bit of an awkward, a bit of a tension-y kind of space. Let's notice one final thing from these opening four verses. The tribes of Israel place a conditional proposition before Rehoboam. We will follow you if. It's worth noting that this request is actually out of place and it's, it's inherently sinful. Israel does not exist as a democratic state where this might be a very reasonable thing to request. Israel has a king and that king is appointed by God. And God has chosen the dynasty of David to be the rulers of Israel. And Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He's therefore the rightful heir. He's the heir by divine right and he should be king. The right and the godly response of the people should be submission and celebration, just like they did when Solomon was crowned king. They should willingly accept Rehoboam as king, and there should be partying in the streets. There should be a celebration. Solomon has gone. Rehoboam has come. Let's all have a great day. That should be what's happening. The fact that that's not what's happening alerts us that something else is going on, and there might be a little bit of rebellion that's sitting in their hearts. 
So this is where we are after the first play. We've got a picture of a sinful people. They've contrived a bit of a rigged gathering. They've pre-selected their chosen leader. And now I want you to, again, think of the comparison here between David and Saul. Notice the difference between David's conduct and Jeroboam's conduct. Both are chosen while the other is still king. David said, I cannot act against the Lord's anointed and ran from Saul for years so as to avoid a conflict. Jeroboam is the face of the vocal opposition against the current king. Very interesting comparison. They've presented the, the people, they've come, they've presented their own self-serving demands before their appointed heir. So now the stage is set for Rehoboam. Let's go back to the tape. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 5, just verse 5. Rehoboam said, give me three days to think this over, then come back for my answer. So the people went away. This verse is the shining light in the in other the otherwise cesspit of failure that is Rehoboam's conduct. Sorry, spoiler alert, right? That's what's coming. Lots and lots of failure. But for us, whenever we find ourselves in a situation where it feels like the deck has been stacked against us and the pressure in the situation is high and emotions are already up and, and there's a part of us that wants to respond in, in anger or in frustration or in defense, there's wisdom in creating space, space to cool off, space to process, space to seek counsel, to hear from others, space to seek the guidance of the Lord, space to make sure that we make decisions out of wisdom and not out of emotion. This is the one positive thing that we can learn from Rehoboam. Create space so that you can find wisdom. All right, let's get back to the game. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 to 10. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice? He asked. How should I answer these people? The older counselors replied, If you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the older men. And he listened instead to the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him. By the way, they're all about 40, so young is a bit of a generous term. Right? And they were his advisors. What is your advice? He asked these younger men. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? The young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips while I'm going to beat you with scorpions. It's actually a kind of whip with like a metal hook in the end. Before we consider which advice Rehoboam followed, let's pause to examine the advice that he received. There's a really helpful framework that we find in the New Testament, in the book of James. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Let's have a look and see what James says. This, this framework is so helpful. If you're ever receiving advice from someone, if you ever need to examine your own heart, use this framework. James 3, 13 to 18. If you are wise... And you understand God's ways. Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find evil of every kind. 
But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and it is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. That's the framework from James. When we hold these two different pieces of advice up to the stand, it's really easy to see which one is better. I mean, this is really not rocket science. The advice of the older counselors is clearly it's peace-loving, it's gentle, it's merciful, it's willing to yield. But the advice of the young men, it's full of pride, it's full of selfishness, it's clearly not interested in the people and their concerns. It disregards them to establish what technically is Rehoboam's right. He's the king, he can set taxes if he wants. Now remember for a moment the context in which this complaint comes and the demand from the people of Israel. This is not a neutral complaint. It's, actually, it's, it's loaded. right? It's designed to challenge Rehoboam's authority at the moment of his coronation. So there's a bit of a scheme that's going on in the background here. So we need to understand the advice that's offered inside that context. Proverbs 15 verse 1, which is ironically written by Rehoboam's father, says this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The older counselors, they've recognized the anger in the hearts of the people of Israel, and they seek to deflect that anger with a gentle, graceful response, and thereby win back the hearts of the people, embodying the wisdom of Solomon. But the young men that are advising Rehoboam, they're offended by the demands of the people. Like, what right do they have to make these demands of us? Look at the setup that they've created to undermine us. And so they react harshly and they react in defense. And their response is understandable, but it lacks wisdom. It's based in anger and in offense and in the desire to fight. Let's go back to the game. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to hear Rehoboam's decision, just as the king had ordered. But Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people, for he rejected the advice of the older counselors, and he followed the counsel of his younger advisors. He told the people, my father laid heavy burdens on you, while I am going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, I am going to beat you with scorpions. The benefit of hindsight, it's difficult to understand what on earth Rehoboam was thinking. I mean, his statement on the advice of his friends is so patently stupid that it's difficult to conceive how we might ever act that way. Because this is what it's about. We're looking at him and we're asking how we can learn. Like You just look at that and you're like, that's just the dumbest thing anyone could ever say. I mean, if Rehoboam had desired to split the kingdom, he couldn't have found a better wedge than this blustering promise of tyranny. Like, no one responds well to that. You know, that's, again, not rocket science. And we like to think of ourselves as slightly better than that, right? If you're going to be a tyrant, you can't ask the people if it's okay for you to be a tyrant. That's not really how it works. But before we let ourselves off the hook and we deflect the warning that's standing here for us in Scripture, let's pause and let's consider the heart of Rehoboam's actions and what we might still learn from that. And how we need to guard ourselves from the seed of evil that the enemy would seek to tempt us with. See, there's actually a, a name for this thing that Rehoboam falls into. The seed that he wrestles with. 
in philosophy. It's, it's got a name. It's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, to interpret, to favor, and to recall information in a way that confirms or supports your own prior beliefs or values. And at the same time, it tends to ignore and challenge information that is against what we believe. Friends, I want to say this is a challenge that absolutely all of us face all the time. And it's even more so in the world of social media and the algorithms social media uses in order to present us with information. Biblically speaking, this idea can be summed up in the words that Paul writes to Timothy when he describes people in the last days, which is now, by the way. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, says, Timothy, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers that tell them what they want to hear. That is precisely what Rehoboam does. As he faces a serious problem, he looks for advice. But he takes that advice and he sifts it through a grid of what he wants to hear. Instead of the kind of grid that James gave us earlier. All of us face this challenge, guys. And if we're honest, it's the reason that many of us don't go and ask for advice. Because you can't ask for advice with integrity if you're unwilling to have your beliefs challenged. And we don't like having our beliefs challenged. Any of you who've been counselors to someone else will know what this is like. When someone comes to you for wisdom and you've watched them ignore what you've said and plunge themselves into this disaster that you so desperately wanted for them to avoid, but they weren't willing to listen to wisdom. In this moment, now, just as we're speaking together, as you're listening to this, I want to ask you to avoid jumping into the role of counselor and the remembrance of counselor. Because as the counselor, we easily agree with the principle, but we avoid any application for ourselves. And the warning that we have here in 1 Kings 12 is for all of us. And it's a warning we can only hear when we admit that our own beliefs might just be flawed. It's not an admission many of us like to make, but it's a reality which is true for all of us. Sometimes we make that admission in word, but it's not really true in heart. And it needs to be true at our heart. It's a reality that we all live with and it calls us to humility. It absolutely calls us to humility. Because for every major public fall like Rehoboam, there are hundreds of others that never make the headlines. A friendship that gets destroyed by pride. A marriage that gets shipwrecked by selfishness. A business that is ruined by the independence of the leader and his unwillingness to listen to others. To quote James again, if you are wise and you understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, by doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. If we watch the rest of the tape, it goes on to show us how this plays out. Just like the English supporters, the result does not go well. The kingdom splits. Jeroboam, whom God gave the kingdom to, chooses to ignore God's commands. And he takes things into his own hands. And he sets up his own kingdoms, right? That's why we've called this kings and kingdoms. He sets up his own system of worship. 
idols that are made out of gold. He builds his own temples and he elects priests from any tribe that he wants except for Levi. So all the Levites go back to Judah. And he leads the nation of Israel, which is what the northern ten tribes get now called, into a history of increasing apostasy and increasing rejection of God until God all but wipes them out 200 years later. That's, that's now the history that's set up for the people of Israel because of the sin of Jeroboam. Rehoboam fares hardly any better. He manages to follow God for about three years before he jumps into apostasy himself. And I won't elaborate any further. I encourage you to go and to read the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam for yourself. And Shelley is going to pick up the story of the kings that follow on from them next week. But as I said in the beginning, Rehoboam stands for us as a great example of what not to do. He is testament to the fruit of pride instead of humility. He is testament to, the, to offense rather than wisdom, to the fruit of power rather than love. He reminds us to listen to the counsel we do not wish to hear and to above all things examine our heart so that we are not similarly deceived. Rehoboam had no idea how history would remember him as the king that squandered the greatest kingdom Israel has ever known. Israel was never as great a nation as it was under Solomon. And yet immediately on the point of his death, it breaks apart and just goes downhill. Friends, we don't know how history will remember us, but we can only do our best by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Finally, as I close, I want to put to rest something that might just be bugging some of you as we've read this passage today, because you might have noticed that we, we saw God and not like God called out Jeroboam and called him to be leader. The prophet gave him that calling, just like Samuel did for David. So what do we do with that? And if you read the next verse in verse 15 that we haven't got to yet, we see that this all happened to fulfill what God had said should happen. So what do we do with that? My perspective and the one I offer to you today as you listen to this is that this doesn't undermine the lesson for us in any way at all. We can see this because of Jesus' own words when he spoke about his betrayal in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. Jesus said this, he says, For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. God can foresee the sinfulness of men. He can work through it. He can even work in that sinfulness to achieve his own ends. But his call to us is always a call to righteousness and right conduct because that's what honors him. And even though if he knows people are going to act sinfully, he can act in light of it. His call to us is to act righteously. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the example that we have of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the people of Israel and how in that moment... They really, they really failed to see the way in which you would desire them to have acted. And Lord, without standing in judgment of them, we want to pray and ask that you would give us grace not to fall into the same trap. We want to pray and ask, Lord, that when we find ourselves in situations of stress, of conflict, of tension, that we would not act out of anger and out of defense and out of deceitful schemes. 
We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't attempt to establish that which is our own instead of that which you've called us to. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, God. Grace to live an honorable life. Grace to do good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Help us, Lord, to filter our own thoughts, to filter our emotions, to filter our our thinking and our responses through the grid that you've given us. Thank you for that description, God, and James. That shows us what godly wisdom looks like. And I pray for us, Lord, that you would give us grace to live in and to operate out of godly wisdom whenever we encounter moments and situations that need your wisdom. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today. May God bless you as you go into the week that's ahead of you. Ciao for now. Bye.